what China is doing, you know, reinventing their currency as a digital yuan is just a lot more efficient way to move money around. And they're using that for geopolitical power, in part to dislodge the U.S. dollar as the primary means of global exchange. And of course, the U.S. Treasury Department doesn't want that to happen because the U.S. dollar is one of this country's biggest strategic assets. But blockchain presents a sort of existential threat to that. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Happy Thursday morning. Before we get started today, I just want to let you know I'm going to zoom back in at the end with some news updates about what we're up to, especially Dynamite Jobs, and with an investing challenge. I want to hear from you about your investing knowledge. So if you're a visionary investor, I'd love to receive an email from you. So stick around to the end and I'll share with you what I'm talking about there. Now, today's conversation is all about crypto. And Y'all know I'm interested in crypto. I have holdings myself, and uh, there's just a variety of reasons. So many people that I respect are into it, has this incredible potential to be a massive disruptor in, frankly, the way the world works, but also, frankly, selfishly, it's just been one of the most amazing sort of retail investment opportunities that I've ever seen. But I also truly believe that not only will cryptocurrencies reshape global finance in the future, but also just create some amazing stories, one of which we're going to tell today. You know, a while back, we interviewed Nathaniel Popper, the author of Digital Gold, about the origins of Bitcoin. It just read like an incredible nail biter, which involved, among other things, the Silk Road drugs website and the eventual arrest of one of its masterminds, Russ Albrecht who went under the name Dread Pirate Roberts. I mean, this is real stuff. (laughs) No wonder some people are scared of Bitcoin. And recently, I've picked up a book which reads in a similar compelling narrative way about one of the key next chapters in Bitcoin. The book's called Kings of Crypto, One Startup's Quest to Take Cryptocurrency Out of Silicon Valley and Onto Wall Street. And its author is Fortune senior writer Jeff Roberts, who got amazing access into the crypto exchange Coinbase, which I personally use, because basically Coinbase makes it easy to buy and own Bitcoin. Now, that can be controversial, as some people feel that really, if you are a true believer in Bitcoin, you should hold it for yourself. We'll get into a little bit of that later. So for this book, Jeff interviewed many of the leading figures in the story, including Coinbase's founder, Brian Armstrong. He also has some great stories from iconic figures like the co-founder of Union Square Ventures, Fred Wilson, and J.P. Morgan's Jamie Dimon. Not only did Jeff get amazing access into Coinbase, which is you know one of the most important exchanges in the world of crypto, but that vantage has given him what I think is a really common sense, sane perspective on all this craziness that's happening. So in the conversation coming up, we're gonna get into crypto's evolving place in mainstream finance, some of the ideological battles that are happening within the space, as well as Jeff's take on why governments are simultaneously so unsettled by the concept of crypto, but also the changes they're making to so-called address the threat, but also to adopt the technology themselves. I really enjoy this conversation. Jeff, as you'll hear, tackled this story via access to the principal actors, which is not so easy to achieve, especially in this space. Enormous respect to him. I appreciate him taking his time today. So let's get into it. I started out by asking Jeff where the idea came from. The genesis of the book was I've covered crypto for a long time on and off, but I wanted to find a new way to tell the story. And one of my favorite business books is a book called Shoe Dog by Phil Knight, who started Nike. And it's an interesting account of Nike, but also a great way just to learn about the growing athletic footwear industry. 
So I want to do that with crypto, find a company that could help me tell the story of what's going on. And Coinbase's journey is really interesting because startups are full of kind of drama and infighting and hacking and backbiting. So it has all that, but also they did it. They became the preeminent crypto company. And in telling their story, I was able to tell the larger story of Bitcoin in a way that I hope a lot of people can relate to. Was this your first big book? It was, yeah. I don't recommend undertaking these things lightly. They're a lot of work, but it was, uh, it was a lot of fun, and I'm glad I did it. It grew out of a feature I wrote for Fortune magazine a couple of years ago. Could we take a moment to talk a little bit about your career? Because a lot of our listeners are creators and writers and publishers. And so I think that they would be curious about how you took the project on, how you funded it, and why you thought it was essentially a good idea. Writing a book's a lot bigger endeavor than I thought it would be. But people have been saying that for mid-career people, writing a book is a good way to kind of level up your career and to, you know, sort of do something new. And when I wrote the magazine feature, I had the good fortune to be approached by a literary agent who's like, hey, there's book potential here. And I was like, oh, great. And I thought, okay, cool. I'll get some money to write a book. It's, it's not that easy that what happens is you have to do a proposal. And I wrote a proposal. I was like, hey, here you go. And she replied saying, well, nice try, but here's what a real proposal looks like and sent me <laughs> these documents that were like 60 to 100 pages long. So the proposal itself is almost as much work as writing a book. But once you have it, the agent can sell it to publishers. And I was you know, fortunate to get a good one in Harvard Business Review, decided to buy it. And then when that happens, you get a contract and they give you some money up front, which is good. But then you have to write the book. And if you, if you don't write the book, you, you have to give the money back. So that's a pretty good incentive. So that's how that came together. I spent a lot of time traveling and doing interviews and pulling it together. But my one tip for anyone uh, who might be in this process is uh, momentum is such a big part of it, because if you step back from it, it suddenly becomes this daunting, impossible task. But if you just go back to it every day, it's you kind of have some momentum, it builds on itself, and it's even fun sometimes. What was the key moment in the book for you that made you feel like you had a real story on your hands and, and not just a magazine feature? I think I was fortunate to get access to a lot of senior executives in the financial and crypto business. And I started hearing all these untold anecdotes about the civil wars inside Coinbase, about a unreported meeting between Coinbase's CEO and Jamie Dimon, who's the CEO of JP Morgan Chase. So I just realized I had all these great little nuggets people hadn't heard of before. And then it was a matter of just fashioning it into a larger arc. And there's a very good book called Thinking Like Your Editor out there that, like a lot of writers, I think, you know, I have a bit of an ego and think I know it all already, but I really didn't. And just in terms of structuring a book and, you know, part of it is narration momentum. This and this happened, but then you have to, especially with a subject as tricky as crypto, you have to step back and explain people what the heck this is all about. So that book, Thinking Like an Editor, was a very good way to conceive of the different chapters and what each would do. Some are simply like rushing forward telling the story, but then some are you kind of hit pause and step back and tell the larger story of how Bitcoin came to be, law enforcement's response to it, the broader industry. So that book was really key in helping me figure out how to go about this. You know, the book opens up with Brian Armstrong, who's our main character. Can you describe a little bit about him, especially in that time pre-Coinbase, what he might have been like? Well, I mean, Silicon Valley founders are sort of special individuals, to put it politely. And I admire CEOs. I'm not one of them, never will be, because they have this, this sort of like iron will and dedication that will just power them through anything. And Brian Armstrong certainly has that. Other CEOs are able to kind of do what they do through, you know, in part by charisma. You know, people like Steve Jobs, Elon Musk are larger than life. They're extremely charismatic. Other CEOs, like the Google founders, like Brian Armstrong, are not. They're introverts. They're nerds. They have trouble relating to people. So I think both then and now, you know, now he's had a whole bunch of coaching, but it still hasn't really helped him, you know, avoid these, you know, PR pitfalls. But he made up for it through sheer kind of like determination, which I sort of admired about him because he couldn't get by on his charm and his savvy and charming the press. He did it through just, you know, relentless drive and guts. Digging around the web a little bit, it seems like before Coinbase, Brian 
Armstrong was something of a lifestyle entrepreneur. Like I'm happy to work from home. Like I've gained my personal and financial freedom. How does someone like that with that sort of message go to running a a billion dollar company? Yeah, that's something else that fascinates me about CEOs because I've met these people who start like not one, but you know, two, three, four, five companies. They've got more money than they'll ever need or what's called in the valley. F you money, you know, and, you know, I mean, if I woke up with, you know, 10 million or 50 million in my bank account tomorrow, I would do something, but I would not be, you know, want to go kill myself to build a company. I'll tell you that. (laughs) And in Brian's case, I mean, he started, I think, like a, you know, small tutoring company with moderate success. Then he was a executive at Airbnb. And I think probably watching the founders of Airbnb made him want to have it himself because part of it's about power and control. And I think that's part of what made him tick like other CEOs, he has a ruthless streak that helped him build what he did. What are some examples of that ruthlessness? It's in the opening chapter. You know, I can't take credit for reporting this. Wired Magazine was one who found this out. But he went to a school called Y Combinator, which in Silicon Valley is very famous. But normally you're supposed to do it with other founders. And he was supposed to do it with this guy he'd met named Ben Reeves, who became a successful entrepreneur in his own right. And this guy, Ben Reeves, had actually bought a ticket to show up at Y Combinator with him. And a couple of days before, Brian was like, hey, this isn't working out, locked him out of all the Coinbase accounts and basically got him, you know, kicked out of Y Combinator, which is pretty damn cold. But, you know, he <laughs> believed it had to be done. And also people on the inside at Y Combinator were whispering in his ear to do it. So, you know, that sort of betrayal and ruthlessness is part of CEO's toolkit. I think most CEOs have done something like that. But I think for other people, that's something that would keep us up all night and we'd feel terrible about for weeks. But for people like Armstrong, it's just something you have to do and they move on. It's interesting, like, you know, Fred Wilson becomes a character here. And obviously, the group at Y Combinator talking to Brian about needing to make this ruthless move. And like on the internet, these people are all like presenting their ideas. Like it's, it feels like very kumbaya if you read like Fred Wilson's blog. But if you hear stories about him, reminds me more of Gordon Gecko. You know, like like this guy just cutting deals. Like it's sort of this interesting like mix in Silicon Valley. They present this kumbaya attitude on their blogs, but then it seems like in the back rooms, they're business people. They're absolutely focused on the bottom line. Yeah, that's a great observation. And I always find it so funny with Silicon Valley, they always frame themselves as like saving the world and our corporate culture and this, you know, and that's where, you know, I almost prefer the New York style bankers who, you know, happily shiv you to, you know, in, in the front rather than the back and don't pretend to be saving the world. You're exactly right. I mean, people like Fred Wilson are ice cold, ruthless business people. But, you know, I mean, it's not like they don't care about humanity or think about the bigger picture, but sure. they also have this, this ruthless streak that is common to successful business people. It is an interesting dynamic that emerges in the book and that you paint really nicely this idea of like the New York folks think the San Francisco folks just don't know how to have fun, you know, yep. <laughs> and the San Francisco folks think the New York folks are, are dinosaurs. Can you explain that dynamic and why it's so critical to the Coinbase story? Yeah, I mean, I think that it encapsulates this best is the co-founder of Coinbase, a guy named Fred Ursum. I mean, he's not really a co-founder, but Brian brought him in after he was down the road a bit because, you know, you're supposed to, as part of the narrative of Silicon Valley is, you know, co-founders, not just a single person. But anyways, Fred was a Goldman Sachs trader. He was a professional video game player. He's kind of an intense guy. And so he's working at Goldman Sachs, which is a good gig. You know, he was a Forex trader there. You know, a lot of money, a lot of prestige. You know, if you're a young guy in New York doing that too, you've, you know, you have a very successful dating life. But he got frustrated because he saw this, you know, the software revolution coming. And a lot of the old school traders wanted nothing to do with like, you know, high frequency trading and like, you know, writing algorithms and stuff because that was a different generation. You know, when I first learned about finance, I heard an interesting story about we, you know, you see movies like Wall Street and you picture, you know, guys in a pit like yelling over each other and stuff. So the guys who used to be the best traders were athletes, hockey players, football quarterbacks, guys who are able to keep their cool with a bunch of people yelling around them and also quite physically strong. They've become kind of dinosaurs and replaced by people who are very good at coding. Fred Urson was someone who fit both 
camps. He was a competitive lacrosse player, but also a sort of computer geek and video game champion. So (laughs) when he was at Goldman, he was frustrated. He was like, we can replace half these traders with algorithms, but they didn't want to do that. They wanted to protect their own interests. They wanted to protect that culture. That's actually sort of disappearing a bit from Wall Street. So, you know, Fred Ersam, to his credit, he quit. I mean, he was making tons of money and he was on the right path to move up at Goldman. But he, as he put it to me, all the managing partners saw the computer engineers as like the IT department, not realizing they would kind of come to eat their lunch. So, I mean, that's, I think, the tension at the heart of the book is you need Silicon Valley type people to rewire the financial system. But you also have this very old Wall Street culture. And Wall Street's still where the money is. You know, that's where the hedge funds are. That's where the family offices are. That's where the billions of dollars of capital are. So the cultures are so different, but they've had to kind of come together and learn about each other and sort of forge a new identity for finance. That's interesting. I remember that line in the book where it's like they referred to them as IT. Yeah. Why would Fred want to talk to you? Like, what does that situation look like? You call him up and say, I want to ask you a bunch of intense questions and put it out there. Well, I was fortunate in that Coinbase kind of gave me access to everyone because a company like Apple, their you know PR department is just vicious. If they you know if they don't want you going anywhere near the company, they will like anyone who's worked there for ten years won't talk to you. So, to Brian's credit, he gave me the green light. He believes in transparency, so he's like, sure, talk to everyone. They didn't have to, but then people like telling their stories. So once they agree to talk, you know, it's, they often sort of tell you more than they should. And that gave me a lot of good uh, nuggets from a book, which was pretty fun. But in terms of meeting him, yeah, it was a trip because at this point, Fred Ursum is worth tens of millions and he's, you know, hanging out with Kenny West. So met him in this penthouse in San Francisco and he was wearing like these fur moon boots and like this crazy vest. And I was just like, dude, you know, but you know, he was very candid. He's a self-aware guy. And he just sort of told me his story, including, you know, what personally drove him, which was a father who was a Harvard MBA where nothing was ever good enough. And, you know, so the thing that makes a lot of people tick is trying to please their parents. In his case, he acknowledged that's what it was. And he compared it to video games. He was a national champion video game player, but he's like, even in video games, you're really good at them. The levels even get harder. And he sort of found that with his own family. So I was surprised the degree to which people shared personal insights like that with the exception of Brian Armstrong, who just sort of seemed almost incapable of that sort of introspection. Do you think that that's been to the detriment of Coinbase? I think once upon a time, you probably could run companies a bit like the military. And, you know, some companies still are that way. Some of the old telecommunications companies operate that way. But, you know, with the kind of kinder, gentler generation, you need more emotional intelligence. And also diversity matters a lot more than it did. If you have a bunch of white dudes, you know, it's easier to kind of build a, you know, kind of common culture, but that's not how the world works anymore. You know, especially when your customer base too are increasingly diverse, you need women, you need, you know, people of color to understand what the world looks like. And if you're not good at, you know, understanding people, it can be harder to build that culture. And that's why we're seeing Coinbase roasted in the New York Times lately for creating an atmosphere where black employees didn't feel like they wanted to work. And that's a problem. You know, in the past, you could say, who cares and move on. But I think not just your customer base in the media, but I think a lot of people who work at these places want to work at a company with values. You know, to a degree, that can be BS, and most people are interested in money. But increasingly, I do think people don't want to work for icky companies. This episode is brought to you by the wonderful people over at Service Provider Pro or SPP, an agency dashboard for productized services. What could be more relevant for the audience of this episode? Look, if you want to sell services at any sort of scale, you need a system, all the way from signing up clients to project delivery. SPP gives you that system in a white-labeled client-facing portal for your agency. If you receive client inquiries about how their projects are going with Service Provider Pro, they can just log in and see all their orders, download their invoices, and manage their billing all in one place. It's the central source of truth for your team about the progress of your client work. They can see everything that's due, collaborate on orders, and send reports. It's all streamlined for selling and delivering services at scale, which I know 
we are all aiming to do. So let's scale it up. Many agencies have abandoned their expensive and clunky custom-built dashboards in favor of SPP and have grown past a million dollars in revenue with the help of this software. So do check out the platform over at spp.co. That's spp.co to learn more and see how it works. And a big shout out to the folks at SPP for sponsoring the TMBA pod and for being so amazing to work with. Uh, just so to read a couple quotes from you. First is, for people with ordinary tech savvy, the difference between Coinbase and managing their own Bitcoin was like the difference between learning to drive an automatic Toyota Corolla compared to a stick shift 18-wheeler with 10 speeds and two reverse speeds. A Corolla might be boring, but anyone could drive it. So this quote really like frames up the central thesis of Coinbase at the beginning. Could you lay out what that vision was when they walked into Y Combinator? I think it's just making Bitcoin accessible because Bitcoin is basically a tribe and a way, you know, to sort of have status in the tribe is to have real tech knowledge and to run your own keys and run your own node. In the course of, you know, my job, I've had to sort of learn how it all works and I've dabbled with all this stuff. I've used, you know, my own private wallets and that's what all the sort of hardcore crypto people are about. But it was complicated. It was kind of cool. But I didn't want to deal with it, but for the fact I had to for my job. And that's the reality is that's how most people are. You know, you have to make things easy, usable. It doesn't mean they're stupid. You know, a lot of people that really wanted to probably could figure out how to like run their own private wallet, but it's just not worth it to them. They just want to be able to own Bitcoin. And that was the insight that Brian Armstrong had. Let's make Bitcoin accessible to everyone. And he did. Thanks to Coinbase, he opened the door for, you know, that's why places like Robinhood and Square, you know, and PayPal are now selling Bitcoin too, because people want it and you have to make it easy. You know, there's a whole ideological dimension to Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, you know, being your own bank, creating a form of money that's not tied to the Federal Reserve. I think that's super cool. And I agree with a lot of it. But, you know, for everyday convenience, you know, it just makes more sense to let Coinbase deal with the security of it than it is for me to have to keep track of wallets and private keys and things that might get lost. So that's how Coinbase did it. They made it accessible in a way that no one else had before. And you also wrote, in the early days, for instance, and you mentioned security, a chunk of customer Bitcoin resided on a USB drive in Brian's pocket. Oh, yeah, that's a sort of funny anecdote. That's a fun thing in reporting this book. They tell you these little tidbits. You know, because Coinbase has basically got all this, you know, in their early days. And now they own, you know, I'm trying to remember how many Bitcoin they own. I think they have over a million of them or more. And that's worth, you know, vast amounts of money. But where do you store it? And now there's these complex ways to, you know, sort of put it on keys. And if you know the Horcrux in Harry Potter, where you break up, like, you know, the key into six different parts and hide it all over the country, that's literally what Coinbase does. And they have to because, you know, that's, that's worth, you know, billions of dollars. But in the early days, Coinbase also had other people's Bitcoin, and they had to find ways to store it. And at one point, a bunch of it was on a USB drive in Brian's pocket, and he describes flying into customs coming back from a trip. And they're like, oh, do you have anything to declare? And, you know, it's that question, do you have over $10,000? And he just like was like, ah, no, you know, simpler than saying I've got the stick with $10 million in Bitcoin in my pocket. <laughs> you know, a question that might not be totally fair to ask you, but I'll ask anyway, which is like, how secure is Coinbase? Because that, that really is, I think, the crux of the consumer question. Like, and we can get to like the religiosity stuff. But when I talk to like hardcore Bitcoin guys or gals, they're basically like holding your Bitcoin on Coinbase flies in the face of all the belief systems and all the coolest features of Bitcoin, right? Which are the sovereignty stuff. But as a consumer... The one I care about the most is security. Am I more secure on Coinbase than I would be if I was managing my own keys? I would say yes, because I've had my own keys. And the problem is you like forget where you put them and you forget the code and stuff. In the early days, the big part was something called exit scams. You invite people to use it and invest in it, and then you basically take the money and disappear. So that's you know a big problem. And then there's getting hacked, which is your slop. You don't invest in security. But at this point, I mean, Bitcoin's been around for over a decade. You know, they have to get this stuff right. You, know, you still hear hacking here and there. But in the case of Coinbase, I mean, I've met their security team. I mean, the head of it's his former army ranger who, you know, used to like 
do computer programming in like Afghanistan. Like these are hardcore people. You know, you've got literally special forces guys as part of the security operation. And in terms of the custody thing, sort of be like saying, can you rob a bank? Yeah, you probably could. You know, there's banks like Lloyd's of London that store gold bullion. And could you get it? Probably if you had like an army at your disposal, you know, but for practical purposes, no, it's, it's this, you know, these banks have been doing this for a long time. They know how to secure their assets. Likewise with Coinbase, I mean, there's probably a sort of black swan sort of event that could see some of the stuff get hacked, but they've been thinking about it constantly since the beginning. Although, you know, in the book I reveal that Coinbase has always boasted it's never been hacked. It did get hacked. And in the early days, they lost a quarter of a million at dollars because one of their vendors. I used to cover cybersecurity, and inevitably that was sort of the weak underbelly of any company is you work with their outside vendors and you burrow in that way. And that's what happened. They had some contractors, and one of the contractors' laptops got compromised, and, you know, someone started robbing Bitcoin from their, their main stash. But that was like within the, you know, in the first year or something. And since then, they've learned the lesson. And now, I mean, yeah, Coinbase might get robbed of a million here or there, although even that seems very unlikely. But the chance of someone plundering all of Coinbase's Bitcoins is, is I'd say, impossible now. It's like this weird situation, I feel, as like a, just a moderate, everyday person who wants to diversify into crypto because I believe in the general religion. I just don't want to be a priest, you know? I feel like I'm being made fun of and belittled because I use Coinbase, but I feel like a lot of these people use Coinbase too. So like Yeah, but you don't look like you have something to prove, you know what I mean? It looks like you have something no. going on besides your cryptocurrency identity. But for a lot of these hardcores, that's who they are. You know, you remember these people from high school who get really into their skateboarder or goth identity or whatever it is. And a lot of crypto is just sort of a subculture. And it's a cool one. I admire a lot of really smart people and the philosophies behind it are super interesting. But for someone like me, you know, I don't know, I've got like a wife and kid and a job and stuff. You know, I, I think crypto is cool, but I don't build my whole life around it. And if I want to own a little bit of it, it makes a lot more sense for me just to buy, you know, a little bit as an investment than it is to kind of go all in on this stuff. But despite me keep saying this, you know, those who are curious about this, I mean, try it out. It's not that hard. Get a wallet, you know, play with it. It's the only way you really understand the implications of being your own bank in a sovereign financial system. You know, but by all means, I don't think you have to feel sheepish about doing it the easy way. Can you bring us into what the block size debate was all about? Because this is something that I didn't really understand at the time it was happening. What a blockchain is, it's a ledger. It's you know, basically a common computer program run on many computers that registers every transaction that happens on Bitcoin. So I send you, you know, 10 bucks of Bitcoin, that will show up on the blockchain. And the blockchain is built by every 10 minutes or so, a new block is added. And those blocks are just a pack of computer code that say, here's all the transactions, including Jeff sending Bitcoin to Dan. The problem with it is its original architecture, it was only built for, you know, a relatively small amount of transactions. So when a whole bunch of people rush to add transactions, it means the transaction normally would clear in 10 minutes, but if there's a high volume, it might take 20 minutes or an hour or at the height of the Bitcoin boom, like a day. And that makes it very impractical because right now, if I use like the Visa network, Visa clears it within seconds, you know, or even like a debit card can do the same thing. If you're using Bitcoin as a payment mechanism, it's very impractical because you have to wait a long time for the transaction to clear, or you can pay a big fee to get your transaction, make sure it shows up in the next block. That's sort of the block size debate. And what do you do about the situation? And there was a faction of programmers and entrepreneurs who were like, we need bigger blocks. Let's start creating instead of one megabit blocks, two megabit blocks, which is logical enough. But this created a big ideological debate between people who were like, no, if we do bigger blocks, that's going to favor, you know, big corporate interests over the sort of like libertarian, independent people who built Bitcoin in the first place. So that led to this faction of a split off called Bitcoin Cash, which is a, a different blockchain built off the original Bitcoin blockchain that has bigger blocks. You know, this gets really kind of arcane and technical, but... It led to this sort of civil war in the community and people hacking each other and dissing each other on Reddit all day long. What were the implications then for, you know, Coinbase was a big corporation at the time in 2017, and they essentially lost this debate, it sounds like. They did. 
ultimately, you know, Brian picked a side and he picked the losing side in the debate, but all it meant was, you know, the Bitcoin is still one megabyte a block and it created a lot of hassles for trying to process these transactions. On a practical level, things are getting better in that there's sort of new technologies to package the uh, transactions more efficiently or add external software layers. And then the other thing, you know, too, is in the case of Coinbase, in a Coinbase to Coinbase transaction, we're both using Bitcoin, but what they do is they just package that all up into one big transaction and process it that way. It gets tricky if you want to send it to someone who's not at Coinbase, and that means your transaction can be slow during times of like peak hype like right now. But, you know, this is stuff that continues to evolve, and the Bitcoin software technology is getting better and better, so that the sort of terrible delays that that really hurt Bitcoin in 2017 are less prevalent. Can you talk about, like, sort of Coinbase's interaction with Binance? Binance is the biggest crypto company in the world. They came out of nowhere, and they're sort of like many of the early crypto companies kind of have a cowboy mentality. There's rumors going around that if the CEO or some of their executives step foot in the U.S., they might face arrest or sanction from the Treasury Department or the IRS and stuff like that. Binance is a very innovative company. They, you know, because of course there's more than one cryptocurrency. There's Bitcoin, but there's you know all sorts of other ones. And Binance did a good job of adding them a lot faster and letting people trade them for lower fees. And they also didn't do much to scrutinize customers because Bitcoin is all about, you know, defy the government, be your own bank, blah, blah, blah. But the reality is, you know, the U.S. Treasury Department is not going to let this stuff fly. That's why you have know your customer laws and anti-money laundering laws. And for good reason, too. I mean, you know, you don't want to make it too easy for, you know, drug cartels and other bad actors to be able to, you know, operate with impunity. So let me interrupt there for a moment, because there was a moment in time when I remember, like, there were question marks around Coinbase and, like, how nicely it would play with the U.S. government. And then when I start to see their interaction with J.P. Morgan bringing the adults into the company, that's when I started using Coinbase and thought, like, this is on the record, where it sounds like Binance took this opposite approach where, like, we are going to continue with the cowboy hats, offshore, hardcore, bunch of different random shit coins. Whereas it seems like Coinbase like put on the suit and tie and said, we're going to be a legitimate platform bank here. It's like you have to both cater to your base and also to the broader market. And by putting on the suit, tie, and jacket and you know playing nice with the IRS and the Treasury Department, that alienated some of the more kind of hardcore believers who also wanted to trade these new assets. And Coinbase was ceding a lot of the market to them. So they had to scramble to find a way to kind of reinvigorate themselves while also walking the line. But, you know, I've also had some sort of like, you know, long-term Bitcoin people. There's a guy named Wences Cazares, who's famous in Bitcoin circles, is one of the sort of first Bitcoin evangelicals who really helped popularize it. And he told me, you know, I mean, he's got absolute cred in terms of old-school Bitcoin people. He says, like, Binance is likely to crash and burn, like other sort of cowboy operations before it. You know, and the reality is too, I mean, Bitcoin people are always defensive when you say, oh, this is used by criminals, you know, and they'll say, look, criminals use $100 bills and Apple gift cards, and they're right. But the reality is a lot of criminals do use Bitcoin. Every ransomware, you read about ransomware, it's always Bitcoin. Hackers in Russia or North Korea lock up your computer and say, we're going to freeze all your files until you pay us a ransom. That ransom is almost inevitably paid in Bitcoin. You might remember the Silk Road, this famous marketplace they described in the book where you could buy any drug on the internet, and it was just this massive criminal marketplace. Bitcoin powered that, too. And, you know, the thing is that that doesn't mean Bitcoin's bad. You know, you and I might own a little bit of Bitcoin, and so do a lot of your listeners. But, you know, it's, it's, the reality is, you know, criminal use of Bitcoin is still a big problem to U.S. law enforcement. Binance has a reputation for not looking too closely who their customers are, so that could bite them in the end. Speaking of putting on a suit and tie, one of the most interesting moments in the book is when you describe the interaction between JP Morgan and the higher-ups at Coinbase. Can you describe what their relationship is? One of the you know, most famous enemies of Bitcoin is Jamie Dimon, the CEO of JP Morgan Chase. He's called it every name in the book. I think in 2017, he said he'd fire anyone stupid enough to trade it. He called it a fraud. He called it worse than tulip bulbs. And, you know, <laughs> Diamond's a very charismatic guy. And, you know, a lot of people look to him. And over the years, he's sort of softened. I mean, he's still not in it. But what's super interesting was in 2016, 
while Jamie Dimon's running around bashing it, he's secretly meeting with Brian Armstrong of Coinbase. And that culminated in JP Morgan becoming Coinbase's banker, because even though Coinbase is kind of a bank itself, it still needs someone to do its banking operations. I don't quite understand why Coinbase would need JP Morgan. I can guess, but well, in the early days, they had Silicon Valley Bank, which is sort of the, you know, every business has a bank, right? Because you have your deposits, you have your payroll, you have all stuff like that. Perhaps even your podcast has something. Anyone who has a company often has a commercial bank to do that stuff. And it's essential. You need banking. For illicit industries like, you know, cannabis or for a while cryptocurrency, it's a big problem not having access to banking. But as Bitcoin and Coinbase became more mainstream, they you know, were able ultimately to partner with J.P. Morgan because you know, that's a company of a, a big bank like Bank of America and J.P. Morgan. You know, they give you and I bank accounts, but they also act as banks to giant companies as well, like Nike and Best Buy and stuff like that, and Coinbase. And so that was a key relationship for Coinbase to lock up because I described in the book too where Silicon Valley Bank, which specializes in tech startups and sort of unconventional companies, they got uncomfortable and actually booted Coinbase and forced them to find another bank, which is a calamity in a sense. Luckily, they gave them six months to find another one. But if you're a business and suddenly you don't have a banking relationship, you're really screwed. So it's just been interesting watching how in the early days Coinbase had to, you know, scrounge to find anyone to bank them. And then ultimately, (laughs) who's their banker but Jamie Dimon. But the coolest thing about what you revealed is like this guy, Jamie, who everybody looks to, he's this really charismatic character, is just Bitcoin's a piece of shit. And then he like puts the microphone down, closes the door and has a secret meeting with Coinbase doing business with them. So this is like the ultimate, like hardcore business person story. I love it. <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. You know, just the sort of like, you know, the, what you do publicly and privately. I mean, there's like throwing his competition off the scent too, kind of. Yeah. Cause while he's out there publicly bashing it, he's got a research lab experimenting with blockchain technology and then he's bringing Brian in, you know, and there's a couple layers to that meeting. One of it was, I think Jamie Dimon wanting to hedge against the future, make sure he's up on stuff. But part of it, I think too, is just a simple courtesy of a uh, young CEO asking for the advice and mentorship of one of the most famous, well-respected CEOs in the country. So I think that's probably part of it is like, you know, hey, kid, sure, I'll give you some advice, you know, CEO to CEO. And then also the very pragmatic business reasons you're describing. Was it Brian who revealed this information to you? Yeah. What was that meeting like? I confess, like, I was pressing someone else at Coinbase who helped me line up these interviews, who'd mentioned it. And then when I sat down with him, I was like, hey, is this true? And he told me about it and uh, what it was like. So, you know, uh, Brian's a very kind of nice, personable guy. If you can, you know, find time to sit down with him. He's also unusual in that he doesn't like media. A lot of CEOs really bask in the attention and press conferences and can't do enough of them. Brian just, he's a very kind of empirical, engineering-minded guy, and he just makes an assessment whether it's worth his time or not. He even has, like, I think, an algorithm to determine it, because we were trying to get him to come to one of our conferences in, in Montauk in the Hamptons in New York. And, you know, I was like, surely he's got to come. I'm writing a damn book about him. He's <laughs> like, oh, I'm sorry, I put in my algorithm about, like, how to spend my time, and this doesn't have the, like, requisite payoff. So, you know, he's, yeah, this is very Silicon Valley approach. It is very Silicon Valley approach. One of the final things I wanted to ask you is about, you've become like a bit of a liaison between this difficult to understand world. You've become like a Coinbase. What Coinbase is for brokerages, you've become for information, you know? And so when people in your life sort of ask you, like, should I buy Bitcoins or should I learn more about this? What is the message you tell them? Yeah, well, that's flattering. Thanks for saying that. And yeah, that's what I try to do is to be a translator between the weird world of crypto and the ordinary world. And, you know, on a good day, I do that. On a bad day, the crypto people hate me because they think I'm not informed enough. And then, the, you know, mainstream people say, why are you messing with this? But in answer to your question of like, you know, what should ordinary people do in terms of buying Bitcoin? I mean, I think, you know, I'm not advising anyone to buy Bitcoin, but there does seem to be a growing consensus. And you're seeing this from, you know, financial advisors and the market as a whole, saying, you know, putting a little bit of your holdings into cryptocurrency isn't a bad idea. I mean, I'm talking about putting 1% or 2% of your net wealth. Not, for God's sakes, don't put 20% or 50% or anything like that, because Bitcoin has crashed repeatedly in the past and probably will again. But, you know, I think the 
common advice is just set up a service with Coinbase or Robinhood or Square to buy like 50 bucks a month or 20 bucks a month. Then you can build up some wealth in that form of money just as you would with, you know, gold or shares or Vanguard. So, I mean, I'm not a financial advisor and I encourage all your listeners to talk to someone else and double check this, but that seems to be the emerging consensus for how people should approach Bitcoin. If we're going to give a beneficial reading to some of the enthusiast critiques of your work, what are the problems they have with the way you speak about crypto and what's behind some of their critiques? Well, I think part of it's turf guarding too, in that I don't spend, you know, I write about other things, I write about the Supreme Court, I write about, you know, big companies. So there are some nuances I don't understand and don't pretend to understand. So I'm not kind of one of the in club as some of these, because, but the, my response is, I tell people, do you want to be a subculture or do you want to be a mainstream financial technology? And if you want to be the latter, if you really want this to go mainstream, you're going to have to learn to operate in the real world a bit. It's fun to go to crypto conferences and it's fun to chat on Telegram all day and, you know, diss your rivals and praise your friends and try to make money. But, you know, that's a lot of that is very cliquey and subculture like there's nothing wrong with that. You can still be part of it and enjoy it. There's a lot of really tremendous, cool, super intelligent people in crypto, but the industry has to acknowledge that they have to learn to present themselves to, to the real world a little better sometimes. It's almost like you can keep hanging out in the uh, dingy club listening to the Velvet Underground, or you can write Teen Spirit and have your Nirvana. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and Velvet Underground is one of my favorite bands for what it's worth. So. <laughs> I always think about that, like your wholesale like insider bands versus what became the retail bands that everybody could gain access to. Yeah, it sounds funny. It sounds like we're almost the same generation, I remember, because I grew up in the Pacific Northwest with grunge all around, and Nirvana would play Vancouver, where I grew up. And it was all about seeing them when they were underground. And then, you know, of course, when they got popular, it became cooler to diss them as having sold out and gone mainstream. And, you know, it's like, come on, guys, get over it. It's good music. So, <laughs> so the final question then, Jeff, I have for you is to just take a look at Coinbase's secret master plan. And uh, something I've come across a few times, and it's exactly what you were talking about, this idea of the promise of mainstream adoption. And so Brian laid this out on his blog. I love how you reference like he feels comfortable on his blog, because that's exactly how I like try to communicate things. It's like I just go to my blog, like it's the way I talk. But the idea is essentially that Coinbase represents the second phase of a sort of crypto world domination or, or adoption phase, which is a exchanges and secure storage that sits on top of the protocol itself. And we're still waiting on the third and fourth phases, kind of. It's distributedly here, but you know we're not looking at like a sort of cell phone worldwide adoption. We're, we're kind of in the BlackBerry phase of cryptocurrency. What's your take on this? I mean, do you think that cryptocurrency is going to take over the world, take over gold, take over money. No, I don't because I mean, you know, give me a break. While crypto's cool, you know, there's, you know, limitations to who's going to adopt it. And then they're also facing competition from governments. I mean, the US, you know, Treasury does not want Bitcoin to take over. Bank of England doesn't want that either. But we're heading into a fascinating period where other companies are spinning up cryptocurrency like Facebook's Libra you know, I'm just sure that Apple's going to get into this game at some point, just because blockchain is such a superior technology that you're going to start seeing, you know, blockchain-based money of all sorts appearing. And then the, this is getting kind of into the way big picture, but what China's doing, you know, reinventing their currency as a digital yuan is just a lot more efficient way to move money around. And they're using that for geopolitical power. They want their trading partners in Africa and Latin America to use it in part to dislodge the U.S. dollar as the primary means of global exchange. And of course, the U.S. Treasury Department doesn't want that to happen because the U.S. dollar is one of this country's biggest strategic assets. It lets us borrow for you know, almost nothing, can be used everywhere. But blockchain presents a sort of existential threat to that, whether it's China minting its own currency on that, whether it's Bitcoin. So we're heading into a really very interesting few years in terms of what the future of money is going to be. Remember, it all used to be pegged to gold, and then we went off the gold standard. Now it's floating. And I think we're at kind of the tipping point of another sort of tumultuous transition into what money is going to be. Is Bitcoin and crypto going to be a part of that? Yeah, it's going to be a huge part. But I mean, are dollars and gold going to go away? No, not anytime soon. But there, there will be big changes coming. 
Do you see rumblings in the U.S. government of people who are focused on this existential threat to the currency? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you, you talk to you know people in the defense industry and high up economists, they're very aware of this, you know, and, you know, trying to figure out how to respond to it, because it's a dilemma for US policymakers, you start empowering Bitcoin too much, you're going to accelerate the decline of the dollar. But conversely, if you ignore it and are hostile to it, the technology is just so powerful, you're going to start seeing it built up in Asia as it is already in Switzerland and England, and you don't want to forfeit that technological advantage. Sort of be like, you know, if the internet was arriving, the US did a very good job of writing laws to facilitate it, and that helped build Silicon Valley. And now the question is whether they can do the same again for, you know, what they call the internet of money and cryptocurrency. That's interesting, because we do have the vested interest as you know, Walmart's not going to jump online right away because they have the most store coverage. So it's really hard. It feels like the US is in a similar bind where, man, we've kind of won the last battle. It's sort of tough to innovate ourselves out of the lead position. Oh, totally. Yeah. It's a classic innovator's dilemma. You know, for whatever reason, the technology called the US dollar is one, it's the market leader. But, you know, as we know from business, no one owns the market forever. thanks to Jeff Roberts. His book, I really enjoyed it. It's called Kings of Crypto, One Startup's Quest to Take Cryptocurrency Out of Silicon Valley and Onto Wall Street. And I think it's not just of interest to crypto investors, but to anyone interested in the way the world of capital and finance is evolving and even a little bit of geopolitics. And I also want to give a shout out to one of the show regular crypto mavens, BitLifts, Greg Gerber for helping me out with some research for this interview. He gave us some really interesting thoughts and perspectives to raise during the interview and certainly looking forward to having Greg back on the show at some point in the near future. At the top of the episode, I mentioned I wanted to issue a challenge. The challenge is essentially this and targeted at those of you who are financially literate and enjoy picking investments. I would love to hear essentially what you think is the next Bitcoin. Now, I don't want the answer to be Bitcoin, but here's basically the challenge. Open up that phone, pull out your email client, and type in my email address, dan at tropicalmba.com, and email me what your pick is for a retail passive investment that someone is looking for a high upside to, and say you know we'd invest like 1% of our net worth in. The type of challenge that you would give Bitcoin as an answer to five years ago I'd be very curious to hear what your answer is to this question. And by passive and retail, I mean, you know, anybody off the street could purchase this investment within one or two hours of setting up an account or understanding the basics of how to buy whatever it is you're going to mention. That's one of the things Coinbase did for Bitcoin is they made it easy for folks off the street to get involved in these sort of newer asset classes. And I'm curious if you see anything like that, whether it be a stock pick or a currency or a new cryptocurrency or anything, just so long as it's not Bitcoin, I'd love to hear your answers. And then if I get some interesting ones, I'll share them here on the show. I do recall a story of me pleading with my friends to take it a little bit more seriously because I did see the opportunity in Bitcoin and It's just been incredible to see what's happened over the past 10 years there. And I'm curious if you have a perspective about what could behave similar in the future. Now, investing isn't the name of the game here at the pod. One of the amazing things about being an entrepreneur is that we can build our own assets where basically can all be little insider traders. One more thing for those of you keeping score at home, I wanted to give some updates about Dynamite Jobs. There's a lot going on there. In fact, today we just launched a new product. So we basically have three product categories right now. The new product's called Candidate Pro. It's a basically like a boost product designed for candidates, seekers of remote jobs to speed up their job hunt. So probably not super relevant to most of the people listening today, but if you are looking for a remote job and you want our team to help you move along faster, check out Dynamite Jobs and Candidate Pro. I mean, basically what we found is that in our database, our internal rankings say that only 5% of our database is actually hireable. (laughs) And it's a little bit of a moving bar because that's a judgment, but the kind of challenge of the product is, well, how can we expand that 5% figure to help more and more candidates 
basically express themselves in ways that are compelling such that they can get the conversations with hiring managers and founders they want so they can ultimately get employed. So that's Candidate Pro that launched today. I won't have results for you on that. The product we've been speaking about, which is Hiring Pro, we've almost reached $2,000 a month MRR on that product. So continue to have momentum there and sales coming in nearly every day. That's essentially unlimited full and part-time job posts, plus a bunch of other features, the ability to browse our platform and things like that. So appreciate those of you checking that out. And the final bit is our custom hiring services. We continue to have really interesting high growth companies come to us and basically say, Hey, we need a tech people, or we need a head of marketing, or, you know, we have these key hires and we need to speak with people who know what's going on. And essentially these are just custom services, which we continue to do because frankly, we get really interesting clients. We charge a flat fee and they seem to be going pretty well. So we're going to continue with the services. So, so far, Dynamite Jobs has had a pretty interesting last month. So, you know, we've only really had the subscription product live for four weeks now. Uh, we got a new product today and the services keep going in. So I just wanted to give you guys a little update on how things are going at Dynamite Jobs. So next week, we're going to be heading into the festive season by reflecting back on what we've covered on the pod. In this, one of the strangest years, if it's definitely the strangest year I've ever lived through. So we, we are incredibly grateful that you all stuck around and listened with us, journeyed with us through this crazy year. So that's it. Stick around for that one. And also shout out to our sponsor, spp.co, that service provider pro. You can find them at spp.co. That's it. We'll be back as usual next Thursday morning. Holiday time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.